to continue with the last good heist. It's going on the way right now. Dave looked at Sam Levine and is glad he didn't make him wear a pillowcase. The odd man colour is bad, ranging from grey to white and almost sickly yellow grain. Deuce needs him free, should unexpected business arise. Now, especially with the rising heat of the morning, Deuce thinks Sam might have died with his head inside a pillow case. Levine is leaning against the edge of his desk, shaking his head, his eyes fixed on the floor, and he keeps repeating, You don't know the trouble you bring me, over and over. Deuce worries that if he doesn't help him take his mind off the predicament, he's in. Sam either will get sick all over the place or have a fucking heart attack. The last thing Deuce wants is for anybody to die on this gig. At least not accidentally. But what to fucking say? What can you fucking do? Calm him down, Deuce decides. So he says, I realise you're upset, Sam, but you know, this is a hell of a way for me to make a fucking living too. Levine squeaks at the gunman, terminally perplexed and feeling all of the worse for it. Suddenly, the glass front door opens with a bang. Levine jumps to his feet. The other hostages are startled. Olivia whimpers. Deuce twists towards the door and moves his trigger finger inside the guard of his revolver. In rushes Lanor in a stage whisper that probably can be heard all over the building, he tells Deuce he believed someone has been watching him. The gunman peers out the door and sees a derelict weaving along the sidewalk. Straight down the street, more than a block away. Deuce says, That son of a bitch couldn't even crawl this fucking far. Deuce shouts, Fucking God damn it! Harry! Get back out there and do your fucking job. Lana turns and leaves. Deuce watches Lana through the window as he scrambles towards the van. Then he turns back to the hostages. This time the problem is Hyman Levine. He appears to be doing worse than Sam. His breathing is laboured. He's sweating profusely. Lift your pillowcase up above your fucking nose, the gunman says. That should fucking help. Deuce reassures the hostages that everything is okay and will stay that way 
if they keep doing just as they are told. You don't fucking abuse and you won't lose, he tells him calmly. Then he shrugged, though embarrassed that he couldn't come up with anything snappier. Again, Deuce catches movement beyond the window. He spots a very old man approaching the front door, a lighted cigarette dangling from his old lips. Where the hell is Lanark this time? Deuce rushes over to greet the visitor as he comes in. The gunman sticks his thirty-eight in the old man's face. You'll be quiet and you won't get hurt, Deuce says. The cigarette jiggles a little and there's a puff of smoke, but the man, old man, says nothing. The newcomer to the, the hostages party has the distinction of being older by far than any other hostage in the building. He looks to be somewhere between 90 and a casket. He blinks several times. Smoke drifts from his cigarette. Deuce gently tugs it away from the old guy's mouth, drops the butt on the floor and grinds it out with his dupe. He guides his guests to a seat beside the other hostages and puts the pillowcase over the old man's head. The latest arrival is Max Jerrilman from Warwick, Rhode Island. He is Sam Levine's uncle. Sam Levine doesn't acknowledge Jellerman in any way. Jellerman returns the favour. A lot of noise is coming from the men deep inside the vault. First it's the high speed drills and a lot of swearing. The name Harry imitates repeatedly. It is attached to more cursing over and over and over. Because of the high speed drilling, it's going slow. In fact, the men are burning and breaking case hardened steel drill bits and making no real progress at all. In frustration, Tarzian jams the flat end of his crowbar behind the edge of the cast iron collar of the big rock on one of the safe deposit boxes, then pulls down hard and quick. Cast iron is strong but brittle. The collar splits in two and falls to the floor with the lock still attached. The door is open. The box inside is pulled to the floor. The sound of its fall is a skin to a drop of a manhole cover. It resonates to the shouts of amazement. These are more men than crowbars, but more than enough internal boxes to be dumped and thrown away. One crash follows another. The noise of the locks and then the boxes falling to the floor is broken only by more shouts, hoots and hollers. The men move fast but they can't stay ahead of the boxes' contents. They do their best not to snatch what's 
obviously the most value in the safe deposit boxes. If it is green or glitters, it goes. Minutes later, Chucky appears at the door to the main office. His mask is perched atop his head and he's steadying himself against the casing. He is drenched in sweat. His eyes are wide and glazed over. His lips, normally thin and tight, betraying no emotion, are now curled into a grin so broad and silly it looks like something he borrowed for a Halloween party. Halfway, he says to Dose, you've got to say this. We've hit your fucking jackpot, mate. Jackie takes Dose's place while the gunman briefly visits the vault. When Dose returns to trade place, He's wearing the same silly grin. The hole is not what John Amite promised. It is unbelievably bigger and better. In adventure movies, when pirates finally uncover hidden treasure, the floor of the cave is usually is covered in glowing gold and silver coins. Jewelry-encrusted goblets, sparkling gems, and mounds of jewelry. That's what Deuce and Chucky see. Little wonder they are both dumbstruck. The heist takes 75 to 90 minutes. The men empty 148 safe deposit boxes. They leave two boxes in the corner untouched because they didn't have enough room to leverage their crowbars. It's time to go, Harry, Chucky says. We've got enough words. Deuce thought nobody would ever hear Chucky say. Chucky and Deuce are first to leave the building. They are strong men and what any fool would call motivated and they have all they can do to carry the loot. They hoist it into a van and return for more. Chucky is a little miffled with Danny's because though he did save the day by forcing the nervous crew out the van and into action, he didn't bring as many satchels and duffels as they could have used for the job. Or enough to match the money Chucky gave him. Denise probably gambled it away. Chucky figures. On the other hand, Chucky says years later, He knew there was so much to fucking take. He has known about the operation for three years and he has always been certain it would be a good fucking score. But it was not his to make, not without permission. It would be disrespectful and no doubt suicidal to act otherwise. He later tells friends there was so much 
in those safe deposit boxes, the entire crew could have spent the day trying to empty all of them. And even then, they might not have been able to finish the fucking job. One of the crew brings out a big green duffel bag crammed with so much loot that he has to drag it. The others who follow do the same. Out of the vault, down the hallway and out the front door to the sidewalk where he plops it upright against the reopened doors of the getaway van. Then bends, lifts, heaves the bag abroad, sweating and straining. The dragging and straining and bending and lifting are repeated until all but two of the duffel bags have been muscled abroad. The big van sags under the load. Two remaining satchels go into Brian's Chevrolet Monte Carlo. The van moves off so the loot can be transferred to the other three cars. They are only minutes left now. The first man into the bonded vault is the last man out. So it's time for Deuce to wrap things up quick. He turns to his hostages, tells them he has taken Sam Levine's driver's license so he'll know where to find him if they don't all follow his instructions now. Dose was going to just lock everyone in the vault. But Sam Levine said closing the vault door before the programmed end of the business day would trigger a silent alarm. Partly a precaution against theft and partly for safety's sake. Deuce asks his captives if they need to use the bathroom. The pillowcases all nod quickly. Deuce says good. Because you're all going. Then he marches his six captives into the tiny toilet stall adjoining the main office. Deuce squeezes everyone inside, shuts the door and jams a chair under the doorknob. He leaves the building quickly, but not at a run. Brines is sitting in his black Monte Carlo at the curb. The car travels only a short distance when Deuce tells Brands the car seems to be dogging it. The front of the vehicle is nose sharply upward and its rear bumper is only inches off the roadway. Brines looks at him and says It's all that weight in the trunk. The silver bars are in there. Oh yeah, said Deuce says. He throws his head back and laughs aloud for the first time all fucking morning. The bars are fucking silver in the trunk. Deuce screams, pounding the dashboard. I hear ya, I fucking hear ya. 
for Barbara Olivia, this is one of the worst moments of her life. As bad as when the pillowcase went over her head. All six people are crunched together and waiting to die inside a funky room the size of an ill-used closet. The room is so small, one person can stand in the middle and touch every fucking wall. For two well-proportioned women to be crushed together against four old men is indignantly fucking disgusting in itself. Olivia never believes that Deuce isn't going to kill them. She fully expects that at any moment bullets will come tearing through the hollow door and walls and she will spend her last ever moments on planet earth bleeding to death beside a filthy fucking toilet. Her blood mingling with body fluids of five other people. People she works with. They are friends, supposedly. But what has been their very first concern? What are they most worried about? What should they report to the police? I can't breathe, said one of them. Don't talk, you use up the air. Silence. I don't hear anybody outside. More silence. Kick at the door. Kick at the bottom of the door. Rattle the nubble hard. A few superheated minutes later. The chair that Deuce has wedged under the knob falls to the floor and the captives fall out into the room. They go to the cooler and drink all the water they can. Abraham, Hyman and Sam start working their way through the mounds of valuables that have been left behind by the robbers. And there is a fucking lot. The floor of the inner sanctum is covered nearly wall to wall with what the thieves have passed up. Mounds and mounds of gold and silver coins, loose. Brilliantly coloured gems, handguns, gold chines, some insects with jewels, elegant high-end jewellery. Most of it still in individual presentation cases, stock books and albums of collected postage stamps. They pick up the jewellery by the armload and use a shovel to scoop up some of the gold and silver coins scattered all over the inner room of the vault. They stash the valuables in barrels and boxes and push them well out of sight. They grab and empty random containers, stuff valuables in them and carry them upstairs. All the while, the brother are arguing among themselves over what to tell the police 
and when. Some people who see the ravaged vault report that apart from the crook's abandoned tools and bent and broken pry bars, the floor still is literally knee deep in abandoned treasure by the time the police arrive. Others say it is ankle deep. Barbara Olivia was one of the few to see it. It was closer to knee deep, she says. What they left behind was so incredible, she said. It's impossible to imagine what they did take. I'd forget a drink of Pepsi. <sighs> now I am rehydrated. Minutes tick by and still the Levines have not called the police. They are dithering and dithering and are confused, disorientated more than that. They are quite simply terrified. They do not want to call the police. Their bickering continues. They keep stalling, arguing, and the longer they delay, the angrier Barbara Olivia becomes. She is already seething from having had a loaded 38 stuck in her face. And when she can't take Levine's dallying and debating any longer, she marches over to the wall of the main office and presses the button that triggers an alarm at the Rhode Island Electrical Protection Corporation. In minutes, police sirens rise into the thick, superheated haze of the morning and Sam Levine goes silent. His complexion still greyish white and he glares at Olivia until the police arrive. But he has no choice to explain what happened. He delivers a straightforward account to the police. It would have been helpful to know when the safe deposit box operation was set up and who uses it. But Levine doesn't volunteer. The information and the police don't ask because, on the face of it, there's nothing illegal going on. Besides, the police are content to let Levine stew over how he and his brothers, in less than 19 minutes in the heat of the summer morning, has suddenly managed to lose untold valuables carefully entrusted to their safekeeping. They are quick to notice when Patricia, the main Italian gangster connected to the Mafia, shadow passes over his victims because all the shit belongs to Patricia, the Italian Mafia boss. The hint of 
mafia action tends to induce amnesia or stupidity among otherwise intelligent people. They forgot. They don't hear things. They know nothing. And the divines are looking like a chorus of those answers. Providence police called me the day of the robbery, says Albert E. Robbio, then Assistant Attorney General, decades after the heist. And they asked me what to do. I said, did you do the fingerprinting, talk to the owners and get the statements? They said they did. So I said, well, did you secure the premises? They said they did. So I said, I don't think you've got any further obligation in this case. So they closed it up and left. God knows what happened after that. But it was some time before anybody can claim any losses. I couldn't put it before the grand jury because nobody stepped up to say what had been stolen. Technically, we didn't even really have a robbery. Chucky returns to the hideout first and parks behind the house so no activity will be visible from Gulf Avenue. He has a couple of big duffel bags bulging with loot. He jumps from the car and pushes open the bedroom window. On the first floor, he tips the bags through the window and climbs through after them. The rest of the crew arrives. They park out of sight near Chucky and pass the loot to him through the window. Sometime later, John Amate pulls up out of the front of the house in his jet-back Lincoln Continental Mark IV and walks in on Bedlam. The treasure is all indoors and the men are drenched in sweat. The house is hot and airless. Some of the men have stripped to the waist. They are aesthetic but as jumpy as a room full of fucking ferrets hurrying sharply with their wings up their fucking arse, almost without direction. They are hooting and hollering and backslapping and hugging one another. There is about as much organisation to this divine process as there is honour among fucking thieves. Each of the men tries to keep an eye on the other while daring its own slight hand. Gold coins slip away by the handful. Big diamond rings drop into pence pockets. Dazzling glittering jewels get tucked into the ankle socks. Somebody always checking the fucking windows. All they need for a mail carrier to arrive. The crooks threw as much of their cash on the twin bed as will fit and the rest of the loot spills deep across the floor in the mounds of gold necklaces, wings, coins, jewellery boxes, silver, bracelets and diamonds and ruby clusters. The volume is 
extraordinary. The men begin sorting the cash by throwing, matching and mark stacks into big plastic laundry baskets. Barnes is sent off to the local market to get two dozen large brown paper bags. Macaskill uses a calculator to follow the cash count as best as he can. He doesn't include the armloads of piddling one and five dollar bills, just the ten, twenties, fifties and hundreds. After five thousand dollars is set aside for Walter Amete, who stole the vans in addition to being the chaffer and chaffering dose from Boston to East Providence, the tally of the cash is seven hundred and four thousand dollars. That means each eleven men, Dose, Chucky, Denise, Browns, Tillinghast, Lanu, Tarzian, Macaskill, John Amatai, and his managing brother Gerald, and their silent patron Raymond L. S. Patricia Jr. should collect $64,000. Not bad for less than 90 minutes of fucking work. At least, if you count it, $873 a minute. For delivery, the bills are packed tightly in the grocery bags that Brian's got. The men double the bags for reinforcement. Wouldn't want to drop one in public and have to explain why you're walking around with all of those bundles of dreams. <laughs>